Don't forget that you can now listen to the Politocrat podcast on Audible at audible.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe now. And thank you for your support. Welcome to this edition of the Politocrat podcast. This is Omar Moore. And it is... Thursday, November the 26th, 2020. And this is a little bit different, as you can tell by the way I'm introducing this, because I wanted to talk about a movie on this Thanksgiving holiday, and a happy Thanksgiving for those of you who observe it. Um, I, you know, for me, quite frankly, Thanksgiving is not a day to celebrate because the Native Americans in this country uh, certainly um, were not treated with the humanity and respect to say the very least that um, they should have been, you know, with a lot of violence on, on, you know, on, on this holiday, you know, I mean, what I like to think about with Thanksgiving is family and togetherness. It's going to be different, of course, now today, very different, as you know. Unless you have taken that trip, which I really hope that you didn't take. Now, this film, Grand Canyon, came out in 1991, Christmas Day of 1991. I remember it well. You know, I, I, I wanted to see a movie, even though I, I was going by myself, and that wasn't really the issue. I mean, I would have um, rather had some company. Um, but nobody I knew wanted to go and see Grand Canyon. Why would you want to go and see that? You know, that, <laughs> it's like, why wouldn't I want to go and see it? I, you know, I'm a movie buff. I'm a movie fan. And so that had started way before 1991. I've been writing about movies way before 1991 ever came. So, I mean, that was not going to be a surprise. I was going to see this movie come hell or high water. And I did, you know, in New York City, I went to a lovely theater uptown. I think it was on the, I think it was in the East 60s um, in Manhattan. Grand Canyon, 1991, Christmas Day, no less. By the way, the theater was packed as it often is in New York on Christmas Day, you know. Um, That music that you might be able to hear, James Newton Howard. That's the score from the movie. And I remember, and you've got to get that soundtrack, and I do have it. I remember driving through California, driving along the freeways of California with that up loud, (laughs) that soundtrack. Especially that main title, opening title song from the soundtrack to the Grand Canyon movie. Oh my God, I I was in heaven. See, that, that's what happens when you're younger and more foolish. Um, you think that that's... <laughs> it's like you're on the, uh, the front of the Titanic um, with Kate Winslet and <laughs> Leo DiCaprio with their arms outstretched. <laughs> I'm the king of the world, you know? <laughs> but uh, Grand Canyon was quite a film. Lawrence Kasdan directed it. It starred Danny Glover and 
Kevin Klein and Steve Martin, Mary McDonnell, Mary Louise Parker, Alfre Woodard, and several other people as well. And I, I always liked this film a great deal. It was really good on the big screen. And what it did so well is show you this gulf between us as people. But yet we, we want the same things. We want to, like JFK said back in 1960 in a speech at American University, we, we all um, breathe the same air, although maybe we don't. If, we, if we're in black neighborhoods, we don't. We breathe, we breathe worse air. But you get what JFK was saying back then. Um, we all breathe the same air. We all uh, cherish our children's futures and we are all mortal. And, and that's, of course, still ever present. And, you know, we just um, passed the horrible commemoration, the 57th of the camp, 57th com- commemoration of the assassination, the brutal assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was only 45 years old. But the reason I use JFK in that quote is because Grand Canyon, I think, epitomizes that spirit of we are human beings. We are um, different in our circumstance and our upbringing and racial backgrounds and economic backgrounds. But we still believe in the same things, which are family, um, self-preservation, protection, um, you know, being able to coexist in the planet with, um, with you know, with other species and um, be able to have a st- stability about us, uh, prosperity and hopefully strive to, to do well in life. But of course, we know that that isn't afforded to all of us. And so there's the fight that continues there. But Grand Canyon... I think there's a really good job of demonstrating the commonality of experience, but how the commonality of experience amongst people, particularly in the United States, and especially in California, as it's depicted because it takes place in Los Angeles, despite the Arizona, the Arizona address for Grand Canyon, obviously of the of Grand Canyon, is that these common commonalities of experience are on a thread, are being stitched on a thread. They're literally on a tightrope or on a spider's web thread that could break at any second. And I think that what you see, particularly in the opening few minutes of Grand Canyon, is that truth, that um, the idea that somebody who is white, who was at a basketball game watching the L.A. Lakers, um is holding his breath just to get home, driving through Inglewood, which most white people, I think, wouldn't really go to during any given day, except for if there was a Lakers game going on at the Forum um, or going on to Staples Center, um, is a sad thing, right? That, that, we, that there's this avoidance amongst some white people. There's this avoidance that we have you know, even if you're someone who's black or if you're someone who's Asian, if you're living in an apartment building, um, you barely say hello to your neighbor unless you're somebody who's been in the building a long time and you're comfortable doing that. But there are a lot of people who, who aren't and they, 
they wait for someone to come into the building and let them go up the stairs and they before going in themselves because they don't want to interact with them. And it's a very sad thing. And I don't believe that that's just because that's a city thing. I believe that's something wrong with us as people. Why do we, why are we so fearful of contact with each other? I mean, I can understand why now you would be given the virus that we're going through and this pandemic we're experiencing, but why would we in any situation outside of that be so reluctant to try to have a conversation, have a conversation to get to know each other? And I think this is what Grand Canyon exemplifies is that there are these series of conversations that go on throughout this movie. Some of them are very tense conversations. Some of them are very intimate conversations. Some of them are conversations that are born out of deep frustration and anger based upon the racist and institutionally racist society that is coming crashing down on them. So the Grand Canyon and and what that stands for beyond the obvious metaphor for the actual national park in in Arizona, I think it's Sedona, Arizona, is just the idea that um, there's a lot that binds us, but there's a lot that separates us, even though we are human beings. And I think the scene where you have these five black young men surrounding Kevin Klein, the white man's car, um, after his car breaks down, I think is an illustration of this. All of these men want the same thing, but what I think both these groups of men are also commonality in, in alliance with is fear. I think there's, there's fear from the black men because they want to be heard. These young black men have been cast away by American society and the racist system that pushes them into this position. It is what the film doesn't reveal, but it is what the film shows, right? I mean, the film shows you these five young black men and they're not well lit. The, you know, the cinematographer, and I forget who it was, made that choice not to light them well, even on a dark street. Um, and it doesn't like Kevin Klein well either. But the truth is, is that it's the society that has produced these men. These men, these young brothers are not monsters. These young brothers are not. They're not at all. They are, they're people who aren't being heard. And this is their way of being heard, especially by the white society that drives by them on the freeway, that drives by them on the 10, that drives by them on the, you know, the... Um, 101 or the, you know, I'm trying to think of the freeways in LA and I'm forgetting them. The Harbor Freeway, whatever that is. Um, the whatever 60, the 660s at Long Beach. and uh, I forget them all. I forget the numbers. And I've driven down to LA a, many, a million times and driven around LA a lot. So I should know them. You know, the 110, you know, I mean, there, you know, there so many people just don't go anywhere near Inglewood or go anywhere near Compton or anywhere near Crenshaw. And there's some really decent neighborhoods in there. And I've been through all of those areas, stopped in them, driven through them, walked through them. You know, um, it's amazing. This film was, was out in the same year that Boys in the Hood came out. 
Boys in the Hood was during the summer of 1991. This, as I said, was Christmas Day of 1991. So there was, what, roughly, I think, July the 12th is when uh, Boys in the Hood came out in 1991. So we were talking, what, five months? Five and a half months or so between these two movies. And both of them were set in Los Angeles. Both of them, in part, set in the very same places. One, but both of them from very different points of view. Um, there's a sense of empowerment in the young black man in Boys in the Hood, but they're only empowered by the instrumentalities of the violence that the white, dominant white society has given them uh, because that society has um, abdicated its responsibility uh, because it is top-heavy with super billionaires, super rich, and the poverty-stricken are those um, in the bottom 99%, uh, and in black neighborhoods, they really are, in some black neighborhoods, they're really in, in, in dire situations. And that hasn't changed 29 years later either, because, of course, what is the same about 1991 and 2020 is that there is a virus. In 1991, it was HIV AIDS, and that still goes on. And in 2020, it's, it's this global pandemic and the COVID-19 virus disease that is, uh, you know, it's ravaging lives. But is, um, you know, this is, this is the very interesting thing. You know, Danny Glover has saved the day now. You know, the, the older black man comes in and saves the white man from <laughs> these, young, these young brothers. And it's... I mean, the movie presents that in a in a way that I think is cartoonish, um, but I think there's a point that Larry Kasdan, who directed it, is trying to make here, which is that um, we all want to we all want the same thing. It's just how are we going to go about getting it? I I I see Grand Canyon as a quite political film, um, not in the sense that it's inherently political. Of course, it is. Every film is, but but what the conversations are are very political in terms of the horse trading. In fact, this one that you may be able to hear faintly in the background is this kind of thing that you'd see on the Senate floor or the House floor, you know? Politicians on the floor um, negotiating a bill and you've got Danny Glover and one of the young brothers um, literally negotiating over the life of... <laughs> of um, first, Kevin... Well, one, Kevin Klein. And two, whether or not Danny Glover as a uh, tow truck driver can do his job without these five young brothers intervening and getting in the way. And that's exactly what you hear or what you might hear in the background is that Danny Glover is, is explaining that, you know, look, I'm supposed to be able to just do my job here as a tow truck driver without you guys getting in the way and, and, and impeding my progress. And that's like Mitch McConnell. You know, that's like, you know, that could be Cory Booker talking to Mitch McConnell, right? That could be uh, Kamala Harris, who is going to be out of the Senate as of, you know, January 20th. Um, she could be saying that to Mitch McConnell. You know, I'm supposed to, you know, we're supposed to get these bills passed without you blocking them. You know, M Moscow Mitch, you know, Grim Reaper. That could be Pelosi saying, you know, we're supposed to be able to get these bills passed without you letting them sit on your desk. <laughs> so it's like, it is like this is this, the kinds of transactions that you see in conversation are the same kind that politicians would have. And 
I do think that's kind of what's going on here. I think it's funny um, that, you know, Kevin Klein is so relieved that Danny Glover's come to save the day. Um, and Danny Glover's just kind of sitting there. And look, you know, Danny Glover at the time was at, at the peak of his powers. He's still an excellent actor, but he's first and foremost an activist, someone who cares about the world, who cares about people. And he's someone who I've met on a couple of occasions um, including had a earlier this year, February of this year, at a Bernie Sanders rally here in California, took a, a picture with him and, and uh, got to meet him. You know, this is just before the pandemic really uh, got serious in this country, um, and he is just a founder of wisdom and experience and knowledge, and 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 he's a very personable individual, and he uh, represents something. Um, bigger than what the movie shows him as. Um, I love that music, though. Oh, you know, James Newton Howard's one of the best music composers for movies. And, and he, uh, this soundtrack in particular, if you ever get this soundtrack, I think it's still on Apple Music or whatever, because iTunes is pretty much phased out. But Apple Music, make sure you, you type in Grand Canyon soundtrack. Uh, I'm sure you'll find it somewhere. It, it's really good. You should see six people on the front of the cover up in the blue, blue suggesting they're up in the clouds. It's blue, a blue background. But one of the things that, that I didn't talk about was the very beginning of the movie, and I did allude to um, the basketball, L.A. Lakers. Um, but before that, you see a group of black men and some older men, black men, playing basketball, pick up basketball at a basketball court, uh, presumably in a black neighborhood. And then you cut from that, the camera cuts, the film cuts from that to the Lakers playing, you know, mostly black men on the floor in an NBA game at the Forum in Los Angeles in Inglewood. And you see Steve Martin and Kevin Klein, you know, two white men in character talking and watching the game. So it's kind of like, again, there are these two conversations going on and going on actually in that instance without the other knowing it, right? Each other, um, they don't realize it, but they're having the same conversation with each other. One of them is on a, a, a court in a black neighborhood somewhere in Los Angeles and the other one is watching at court side the very same basketball game except with highly paid black men as basketball professionals in the NBA is the LA Lakers against the Orlando Magic and it's just interesting how that weaves through this movie there's always these types of experiences being had by human beings in different backgrounds but it's a commonality of experience and there's a really good shot where they show a television set with the movie excuse me a television set with the basketball game with the Lakers highlights and they drift from one one room watching the TV to the TV itself and then drifts to another room and then it's a completely different family the white family watching the exact same thing so there's this this real push that Larry Kasdan makes to really 
close this gap between black people and white people in Los Angeles, at least over something like basketball, which, which is kind of funny to me in so many ways. I think what's also interesting about this movie, and I didn't get to it, but the fact that the, these two worlds collide, I don't think I finished my thought about that, in that car where Kevin Klein is sitting and these five or six black men are around the car, young black men, and there's fear, you know, there's these two experiences being had at the same time. But fear is actually something that governs both the experiences. Kevin Klein being boxed in, he's obviously fearful. Um, in his own car, he's boxed in. He doesn't know whether he's going to be able to get out. I mean, it's the same fear I would have if the police came up to my car. And, you know, that happened to me a couple of years ago. You know, I got stopped. Um, I put my hands on the steering wheel. Um, I was praying. For 20 minutes, I had my hands on that steering wheel. And it was, these cops were screwing around. They were effing around with me. I was these two white cops. Uh, one of them a rookie, you know, young guy, which is all the more unnerving because these are the worst kind of of white cop. Although older white cops do the same thing, he just ask Tamir Rice. But this guy had, I mean, I had my hand ten and two on that steering wheel for twenty plus minutes, and this guy was looking at my license up and down, and there was just no record. But it was a complete intimidation move, and if I had moved, I would have been shot dead. I wouldn't be talking to you right now. But I think what governs the experience in that early portion of Grand Canyon is both of these groups of people are fearful. As I said, Kevin Klein is, and these young men are because they've been rejected by the society and they want to be heard. They want to be heard. They don't want to be ignored and they are ignored. The society ignores them. White society ignores them. The hierarchy ignores them. The system ignores them and throws them out. And this is how the system wants them to react and behave. And they want you to be afraid because as long as you're afraid of these young black men, especially if you're a white person afraid of these young black men at night, then you will always vote against people who represent or try to represent them. And then you'll always be divided and it will always give the super rich in this country the mechanism to keep themselves in power exactly as they are while you uh, scrap for mediocrity and uh, think that you're somehow on the moral high ground for hating black people, you know. But I do think there is some stereotyping in this movie, like there are in a lot of movies still today. And, you know, the, the, the you know, <laughs> I just look at this as the what I call the Sidney Poitier, uh, Poitier complex, you know. The Danny Glover character is there to impart this wisdom to the white man who has the complex life. Oh, you know, and this is something that's happened in a lot of American movies and with white women, too, in the movies. Oh, my life is so complicated. Help me make sense of it all. And there'd be the black character who would help the white character make sense of it all. (laughs) I mean, that would happen. It happened in Go With The Wind, Hattie McDaniel. She won an Oscar for doing that, for making sense of it all for, um, for Scarlet, right? Um, she won an Oscar for that. I think she was the first black person to win an Oscar, Hattie McDaniel, back in 1939 or 40 or whenever it was. And her Oscar speech couldn't have been better, by the way. I, I think it just, it's, 
this is set up in this movie. You know, Danny Glover is that Sidney Poitier character. He's perfect, he's nice, he's personable, decent fella, clean cut, you know, and he's an everyman. <laughs> he can't just be himself. He's got to be this hallowed aspect of perfection, which is really, quite frankly, in my view, a dehumanization, right? And if you have to make someone perfect, then that means they're not real. And if they're not real, that means they don't really exist. And that means they're kind of the same kind of character that Ralph Ellison wrote about in Invisible Man. But there's a lot to like about Grand Canyon. And I remember it so fondly and I, 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 you know, I, I do watch it every now and again, but it's not been, it's been a minute since I last watched it, if you will. It's been a long time, that means. Ah, uh, dear, I remember, I remember um, some of the satire in the movie. You've got uh, Steve Martin playing a movie producer who reminds one perhaps of, of Joel Silver. And then you've got the director himself making a cameo there, Lawrence Kasdan, um, but this is, this is, uh, 1991 was such a year. I think 1991, by the way, was the same year that Magic Johnson, which is very interesting about this movie because they do show a clip of Magic Johnson early on in the opening credits. But this movie, you know, this, is, this movie came out literally about a month after Magic Johnson held a press conference to reveal that he was HIV positive. And the hatred that he got from some people in the NBA family, the Chuck Barkleys and the Carl Malones of the world, you know, especially Carl Malone. Oh, it was hideous. It's really awful. And now people are treated a little bit differently, you know. There's still a lot of rampant homophobia and fear, which hasn't changed that much. But I think there is also a lot more acceptance of people who are gay than there were years ago, or people who have HIV than there were years ago. I remember when Matthew Johnson held that press conference and there was so much shock and few people supported him, at least in the NBA family, at least publicly they were all, or some of them were just particularly um, unnerved. But there's this fear, 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 and it, it's it's toxic and it, it's used to control people and it's used to also keep people in their so-called place. But I find a certain poignancy about Grand Canyon that kind of makes, that moves me, you know? I just, I think it's because as I get older, I reflect on movies like this and think about how quaint some of this stuff was, but also how toxic it was. I mean, in the 1980s, the same thing with movies that were really misogynist and blatantly racist. And then, of course, way before that in the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, where Hollywood movies were, were just so disgustingly racist. A racist, period. It was just horrible. And, and that gets chipped away at, but there's still aspects of that even here in 2020. Um, I don't know how many movies you saw in a movie theater this year, but I can count that number on one hand, given this pandemic. I do like the music, as I said, and, and it's, 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 it does combine those feelings of baby boomers. You know, I think a load of these people were born, um, these uh, people who are 
you know, Mary McDonnell, their character's not necessarily them, but they may have been born, you know, born in, you know, baby boom, baby, baby boomers, um, what, 1940s, up until, late 1940s, up until what, around 1966, 67, that's the baby boomer era, right, so it does stretch all the way over to 1960s, and a load of these people are kind of going through that midlife crisis there in the in the in the nineteen um, nineties, I guess. At least some of them would be, um, and they're just trying to reevaluate their lives and and um, and kind of having this nostalgia about their lives. But that nostalgia may not be all cheery. It might actually be quite um, I don't know, quite the opposite of cheery. I think. I think what I also like about this, and I think I may have alluded to it before about Grand Canyon, is the way that boundaries get closed down and contradicted in one incredible blow. You know, at one moment you will see a scene, if you go and watch this movie, where Mary Louise Parker, uh, who is working as a secretary to Kevin Klein's character, um, they're clearly having an affair. They're in his office. And she walks up to him and and clasps her hands, interlocks her hands with his, interlocks the, her fingers with his. That's a very intimate thing, by the way. Um, I, you know that. But it is. It's very intimate holding hands. It's, it's intimate um, in a different way from sex or in a different way from tongue kissing. But it's intimate. It's a very, it's a different form of intimacy. And... That being done at the workplace um, shows this kind of, on the one hand, their interlocking fingers are very intimate and they're very close. But on the other hand, presents a really huge problem um, because of the power dynamic between Kevin Klein's character, who is an immigration lawyer at a firm that he works at, and the secretary who works for him, Mary Louise Parker. So there's this huge imbalance of power, even though um, they are clearly one in the bedroom and clearly one outside the office and clearly one by interlocking their fingers in the office. Ooh, such an audacious move. Uh, It was a lot, (laughs) there was a lot more going on in offices in 1991 that were much more audacious, shall we say, or shall I say, than just interlocking hands, fingers. But... The point is, is that there were, that's a paradynamic imbalance, hence that sexual harassment, even if it is consensual because of the paradynamic. It's the same thing that happened seven years later with Hillary Clinton and, excuse me, with her husband and uh, with Monica Lewinsky. Consensual, but nonetheless, you know, a real problem is sexual harassment. So so this is what's going on, you know, there's this gulf. I don't, I don't know if it's a gulf because people are in different places, because the circumstances for everyone's different, or if it's because there's a larger representation of what American culture is in 1991. If it is this dearth of nothingness, of some people striving, we're all striving supposedly to assimilate into something, that we're actually assimilating into nothing at all. And that presents its own problems because then if you have a blank slate of an identity, you have no identity at all, which means you've got a clean tableau slate. And that means you could be anything at any given time 
including a fascist and a, a, a racist or someone who is very dangerous, like the person who has 56 days left on his, uh, on his term in the White House before he's booted out. But, you know, I, I think Grand Canyon does provide some optimism. It's a little hokey and corny, I guess, it's sometimes, but I think there's a real-world truth to the film is that um, it does not shy away from um, the kind of adultness of adults, the, you know, that kind of thing, that there's the danger. And, you, you know, I, I'm literally looking at a scene as I'm talking to you that I just talked about, which was the clasping of the fingers of Mary Louise Parker and Kevin Klein at the workplace. And I don't know if they really had, I don't think they had very many workplace. In fact, I don't remember having to see, I didn't see very many workplace manuals on sexual harassment back in 1991. I know when I worked in 1991, I didn't see them. I mean, they were certainly not evidently clear. Um, They were part of a contract, but they seemed to be much more nondescript than they are now, obviously, in 2020. You know, we've had the Me Too movement, which continues. Um, We've had all of these high-profile criminal situations involving a lot of people in the media and in other places. Um, And I think now that awareness, all the hard work of women's groups, women's rights groups, and other groups who have made it known that um, they are not going to take this stuff anymore and there's going to be action as a result. So yeah, I get moved when I watch this movie now. And again, I think it's introspection, it's time, it's getting older, it's um, introspection, as I said, and, and reflection and all those things. And, and um, it's, it's a movie that, you know, you remember where you were when you watched it for the first time. And, and it's a movie that actually is really good. And I think it genuinely tries to be good. You know, this is the time in 1991 where the internet was just really percolating, you know. There were these dial-up services on the internet like Prodigy and America Online. I used to use that. Um, I remember that so fondly, you know. Um, Prodigy as well and CompuServe. And yeah, you know, that was what it was like in the 90s. Um, A lot of damage in the 90s, though. Bill Clinton's legislation, uh, you know, welfare to work or whatever it was, which was a disaster, really decimated a lot of poor black families, really did hurt them. Um, That was really not great, to say the least. So, you know, I I think that um, I could go on and on here. (laughs) I I really do advise you to watch this film. It's a a wonderful film. Grand Canyon, it's two hours long. You know, it deals with racism. It deals with a lot of different clashes of different people uh, and situations that people find themselves in. But again, this gulf, this gulf is something that needs to be bridged. Um, And there are moments in the film where the gulf is really obvious and evident. And there's moments in the film where it's not because people are so close together and they're very intimate in many different ways. Not I'm not even talking sex. Per se, I'm just talking about, well, that that is there too, but I'm just talking about the general tenor of people just trying to go through the world every day. I think that's moving. I find that moving. I guess it's because, again, as I, as I get older, I, I think about these things more. And I guess, I guess you do if you, if you 
You know, if you go through the world, you, you, and it's fine because you're interacting with the world and you're thinking about the world and thinking about your place in it and thinking about how you can make the world better. And yeah, it can be weepy donuts. You know, it, it can be... Um, at least people reflect. If you can at least reflect, I think you're <laughs> making a step in the right direction. If you can do that, if you can uh, pause and reflect on your on your life or on moments in your life and the future and uh, about the world you're living in and the people you connect to and everything, it's it's a really good exercise. And conversations are really where it's at. And in Grand Canyon, there's a lot of different conversations going on. And the mood and tenor of each of those conversations is always fascinating. Some of those conversations are very open and light. Others of them are very tense and sharp and terse and threatening and fearful. And then others of them are kind of more quizzical or discovery-oriented. People are just trying to feel through things, feel their way through with other people. And we've lost trying to investigate that. We've lost that art, I think, in some of us here in America in particular. We've lost that. Um, that that idea of interaction through conversation is all people now just looking at their iPhones for conversation. That is the conversation. You know, two people walking down the street, they're clearly a couple and both of them are on their phones or both of them are just kind of silently uh, you know, typing into their phones or looking at their phones or reading something on their phones. And that's what technology has done to us. You know, education has, has been eviscerated from us. I mean, no one talks about defund education, but the fact is, is that since the 1980s in the United States, education has absolutely been defunded and taken out of budgets. I mean, Republican presidents especially and Republican governors have slashed budgets for education for 40 years, and it shows. It really shows. Just look at the people who support Donald Trump. But it goes beyond them as well, by the way. But all of this division and hatred, which is being fostered by uh, white people in power to keep people divided and keep white people divided too, even though there's, of course, a giant swath of white people who are racist and who are unwilling. And even that softened, though, earlier you know, this year with Black Lives Matter movement, and there are some changes there. We'll see if that sustains itself. George Floyd, you know, that was a big deal. You know, in 1991, we had Rodney King. Nothing's changed in that regard. You know, Rodney King was 1991. He survived that beating on video by the LAPD, um, only to die about, what, 10 or so, 15 or so years later. But now in 2020, you've got George Floyd, who we know died such an evil death. It was gruesome. It was absolutely an execution, a lynching. And we've seen others, Breonna Taylor, that was an execution, a lynching. We saw what happened also, um, you know, with others. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just so many people. You know, Rashad Brooks, Ahmaud Arbery killed by a white mob of racist terrorist people. You saw what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin as well. And people are spending $2 million collectively to back this guy who killed two people and blew the arm off another. I mean, that's where we are in America and it's downright frightening. I think that uh, 
Grand Canyon showcases us all kinds of different things. And I, I don't ever get tired of watching it, even though I haven't watched it for a long time. Uh, I don't get tired of watching um, the acting because it's very good and the direction's good. The music is just out of this world. Um, and I think I'll just leave it at that. You know, we have to treat each other with decency. I think that's what this film also gets across. We've got to communicate. Instead of running away from each other and not wanting to look each other in the eye or anything like that, we have to move to each other. But we can do that after this pandemic it dies down. But you know what I mean. We need to be in touch more with ourselves, first and foremost, because you can't, be, you can't really be in touch with anybody until you're first in touch with yourself as a person who you are. That's what I'm talking about. Because that really matters. It really does. You give of yourself. And if you can tap into who you are and discover who you are, um, it makes for better interactions, not just with yourself, but with other people. You know, but wow. You know, it's life is there to be lived and even in these tough times. And hopefully we can all learn as well and learn from each other which is very important, and communicate to those we love and do so regularly and make sure that you absolutely commit to the one that you know you really care about and the person that you value the most and make sure that you do the good things, which I know you will. I know you will. I hope you're enjoying your holiday. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. Have you ever seen a movie called Sullivan's Travels? No. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. It's a story about a man who loses his way. He's a filmmaker like me, and he forgets for a moment just what he was set on earth to do. Fortunately, he finds his way back. That can happen, Mac. Check it out.